0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with science writer and author Jim Robbins. Jim has written a book called The Wonder of Birds. He's an author of many books about science and nature and has also been an author and a columnist for the New York Times, among other US publications. We are now speaking with um, an author, a science writer of many, many years, um, Jim Robbins, who has written for the New York Times, the Smithsonian, Vanity Fair, um, a whole range of publications and therefore has a massive bank of knowledge um, about nature and science and obviously many interests as well in that field. The particular one we are looking at today is The Wonder of Birds, but uh, as we were speaking off air. Um, I know that Jim has written a book about trees which is one of my favourite topics of all time so welcome Jim and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: It's good to have you here because uh, this topic has been something that has definitely sparked the interest of people who tune into this show. Um, I spoke with Jennifer Ackerman last year uh, in the studio about her book The Genius of Birds and that was obviously very fun because they're you know Birds like the New Caledonian crow fashion tools um, to, you know, pick out food and are highly intelligent. And we also have some very intelligent birds here in Australia. So I'm really um, pleased that there's more contributions to this field including your book uh, which is called the wonder of birds and it's out through black ink which is a great publisher here in melbourne um so jim first of all uh when it comes to birds i mean what what was it that sparked your interest in birds and were you doing um initial research into birds that kind of got you thinking that there's something more to this
1: Yeah, I did a story uh, for the Times, and these stories I'll mention are available on the Times website if people are interested, uh, about hummingbirds. And I went to a a lab at the University of Montana near where I live, and um, I watched these scientists put hummingbirds in a wind tunnel and give them a a feeding tube so they could uh, sip nectar while they flew. They cranked up the wind so that the bird was flying at 30 miles an hour. But it was um, staying in place like a treadmill. And then they would take high-speed film of these birds and then look at these films in super slow motion to understand how they fly. And, and it opened up a whole world. I mean, I've always loved birds and, and a bit of a bird watcher or a twitcher, as they say here. <laughs> and um, But knowing that people were taking birds and, and looking at them, as you will, under a microscope or in an X-ray machine or whatever – It was kind of very interesting to me. And so I started looking at how people, I call this book an interpretation of birds, how people interpret birds. Mm. Um, There's another fellow in the same lab that that, uh, looks at dinosaurs, studies dinosaur behavior because birds are the dinosaurs that made it. Um, And so he can look back at how flight might have evolved using birds as a model for understanding how dinosaurs may have once learned to fly and which i found absolutely fascinating
0: it is fascinating and uh you do talk about that that's actually the first chapter is um about birds the dinosaurs that made it and uh it's really about or it it does there's some massive contributions that have been made that you highlight in this book um to the different theories that have you know occurred over time. There are two main theories um, that both seem quite inadequate and don't really explain things. And uh, and one is the arboreal uh, explanation, which is the first flying animal must have glided from a tree to the ground. And uh, as it went, it added flapping to increase thrust. And then the second uh, explanation is the cursorial, which refers to um, the animal's ability to run fast and, uh, and the theory is that after really zooming along um, you know almost like a runway this uh, a bird or a type of dinosaur that became a bird um, made a series of leaps and somehow uh, you know got off the ground to some level and defied gravity I mean these seem quite fantastical I mean it is really difficult to somehow extrapolate from fossils what these dinosaurs were doing but as you highlight in the book there is this researcher who has another theory theory and he discovered or came across this theory through baby birds. Could you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, he says look at the living animal. Why study stone fossils when you can look at at the dinosaurs of today and kind of project backwards. They're a window into the into the distant past. And what he he studied baby partridges they're precocial birds precocial birds are birds like the australian bush turkey which is super precocial these are birds that are ground nesters and on day one they can run and and escape predators altricial birds are birds that are born in the nest and need care parental care for for days or even longer and so he looked at birds that that are precocial and on day one can can run up uh, the side of a, a rock or a tree. Birds are great climbers, by the way. It's one of the few things we know we don't know about. But one of the many things we don't know about mm. birds is that they have amazing feet. Uh, he calls them leatherman tools that they can do anything a bird wants them to do. And um, climbing logs and climbing rocks and so on is, is nothing for for many birds. And he has film of those those birds doing that. Um, and so he looked at baby partridges, and from the time they're born. To the time that they fly, he believes that, that that period of of weeks there is how dinosaurs evolved over millions of years, and in in this this um, this period is is a glimpse into the evolution of of flight in dinosaurs. One of the big questions in the field is why would a dinosaur why would a bird be born? Well, actually, why would a dinosaur have half a wing? Because it. it, it it doesn't do anything until it's full grown. And so what he found is that a wings or proto-wings, the early wings, were um, a balancing mechanism for birds to run. And that they probably at some point birds were born with a bigger balancing wing. And those are the birds that first learned to fly. And then the course of evolution favored them. And they actually became able to glide and eventually to actually fly. And so over millions of years, a bird balancing wing went to a flying wing. And Mm. it's very innovative and very um, intuitively uh, um, interesting. I think there's probably something like that going on.
0: Yeah, and the study that you're referring to, um, known as the hay bale experiment, involved uh, this researcher's son as well. He was off doing um, other research at another university while his son was keeping an eye on these baby birds as they grew and as they removed or pulled apart these two hay bales and they were trying to get the birds to go from one hay bale to another, they discovered something exciting and funny, I guess. Um, could you share, I guess, what that interaction was and what we learned from that experiment?
1: Yeah, his son was uh, was watching the birds while dad was away doing something and his son was 14, I think, at the time and he said, they're cheating, dad. He said, they're not flying, they're climbing. And they were climbing, and that's where he learned about the climbing uh, of birds—how how radical climbers they are—and um, and then they were gliding down, and mm. so that's when he first started thinking along the lines of of how birds may first have learned how to fly. And his son now studies the same thing. He's—I a, a, forget what, what college he's at, but he teaches the same kind of bird physiology, animal locomotion at at other places. He's he's followed his father's footsteps,
0: mm. and it does highlight a couple of things that we don't often see visually that birds are doing such as climbing but also flying backwards there's really a range of um, movements that they can do that we don't often assume or associate with birds Mm -hmm. what are some of the most impressive things that you have you know learned about throughout this book because I know for example hummingbirds are particularly impressive physically uh, with their movement and
1: that's one of the Points of the book is to try and say, hey, folks, there's a lot more going on in the world than we we know. I'm trying to... I guess it w- we'll treat the world better if we kind of wake up and see a lot of these things for the miracles that they really are. Hummingbirds are one of the great flyers in the world, and bird world, and they fly upside down and backwards. Ravens do barrel rolls and fly <laughs> upside down. Um, flight is an amazing thing. We, do, we think about our aircraft as kind of being this amazing technology... Um, but it's primitive compared to what birds can do Mm. and that's one of the things that comes out in the laboratory that i'm talking about where i visited scientists um but you know if you think about it ken dial who is the the dinosaur guy uh said you know a bird can go from 30 miles an hour and to a dead stop on a cattail that's waving in the wind and and our our machines come nowhere close to that mm. one of the things that they're trying to design into aircraft based on bird studies is is the ability uh of birds to morph to change their shape to go from having their wings outstretched and gliding to being shaped like a bullet and they do that quite quite quickly and there's a number of designs of aircraft that are looking at this kind of a change in in body shape uh, so when a, a plane takes off it would it would be very different looking than when it was flying.
0: Mm, it's really interesting. Um, and you note in uh, the chapter on hummingbirds that uh, you know the history of flight and Aviation has really, and the study of it, has come from birds and the observation of birds, such as Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Codex on the Flight of Birds and uh, Thomas Berwick's History of British Birds. So, I mean, birds have provided an immense source of information for us and continue to do so, as you just said, um, you know, currently uh, and in the book, it says that NASA and MIT built and successfully tested a shape-shifting wing made from millions of pieces of metal Plastic and other materials that morphs um, like a bird wing as it flies. I mean, that's really exciting to hear. One of the other things um, that I found fascinating was that you talk about kind of the research that we haven't done or the things that the gaps in our knowledge, and that you know, a lot of the designs that we've created have assumed that these wings and feathers are completely solid, um, whereas that's not the case feathers are quite special and unique and have um gaps can you tell us more about the feather and what makes it particularly impressive
1: a lot of gaps in the in between the the um feathers to hold air to make the the a feather um hold the bird aloft um, one of you mentioned you know one of the things we don 't know, and that 's one of my favorite themes in the tree book and again in this book is how little we really know about the world and it 's absolutely mind boggling when you start to uh, it 's one thing to ask a researcher or someone what they know about their their particular um, field, but when you ask them what they don 't know is when it 's very illuminating. I talked to a redwood uh, forest researcher and i was quizzing him on the roots and the and these tall trees that grow in california and he said, uh, I'm not sure. He said, well, I don't know. And then he, he said, you know, it's embarrassing how little we know. And you think a tree, well, that would be pretty simple to understand, but there's a lot more going on than you can ever imagine. And it's the same with birds. There's so much there to learn and to to wonder about.
0: There is. And some of the facts that sparked my imagination um, was that, for example, uh, the hummingbird has a, a record number of heartbeats per minute, 1,260 when it's at full flight, Um, and uh, in torpor, which is when it's kind of in hibernation almost at rest, it can be between 50 and 200. So this bird, and it has um, a heart the size of a pea, which is the largest um, in the animal world relative to its size. I mean, this is kind of biological miracles really like the things that birds do the i guess the muscles that they have in their wings and their breasts you know that's just um something that i guess we when we look up in the sky and see birds flying around perhaps don't quite understand or fully appreciate
1: i think that's true i think that uh that's again that's kind of the main theme of the book is well this is really amazing stuff folks i talk about uh, penguins. And they, before they dive, uh, they raise their heart rate up to about 250 beats per minute. And then when they dive, they go down 1,500 feet, which is about 10 times what humans can do. They go down in this very cold water in the um, in the Arctic, and they um, go, or excuse me, Antarctica, and they go down to 1,500 feet, and their heart rate goes down to 5 beats or 6 beats per minute. So they have this ex- exquisite control over their nervous system. We actually do too. I've written I've written several books about about the human nervous system. We have that ability, but it's something you have to you have to learn and spend time doing, but but it tells you something about these animals and how they've adapted to their environment.
0: Mm, and that they're very advanced. I mean, we've talked about the physical and biological impressive um, aspects of birds, but what about um, their cognitive genius and communication, because they're two of the things I think that we may not understand yet. One um, that you pick up in chapter four, which is about the flock and murmurations is particularly interesting because that's one field that really needs more research undertaken um, because it would also help humans understand a range of elements, particularly extinction um, and migration and climate change. Um, could you talk more about, um, I guess, what a murmuration is and then what we currently know about flock behaviour and communication?
1: A murmuration is the, are those swirls of bird, birds that fly together by the thousands without hitting each other and they're able somehow to stay uh, an even distance apart and to swoop and swirl and to um, do that for minutes, if not longer, in the mm-hmm. sky, it's it's quite amazing to watch. There's plenty of videos of it on, on the Internet. And um, pe- physicists have been studying it, biologists, they have no idea how it's – well, they do have some ideas how they think it's done. Mm. Um, some people think it's telepathic some people think that there's information transfer between birds when they're flying but what they know is that that there's a metacognition or a group mind that these birds have that's bigger than the individual parts of this so they kind of come together and create a super intelligence And it helps them do things like knowing when to migrate, when it's safe. Migrations are very risky for birds, and so they want to do it at the most optimum time, when the weather's good and the right time of the day. It tells them when to mate, uh, where to go for food. So somehow there's this information transfer and gathering that's taking place in a bird flock. And there are a number of researchers who are trying to figure out how all this works. They think there might be a fundamental force of physics um, at work here, uh, and they're trying to, to trying to discover more about how it works.
0: Mm. And um, and you do talk about the fact there may be influencers or birds that are perhaps more wise or have a better knowledge base of things um, that tend to influence other birds behind in the flock, and that's one theory, right. but it's obviously not yet proven that that's the case. Um, one of the things I thought was particularly fascinating was um, that birds navigate in migration by using a range of cues. And you talk about um, stellar constellations, the smell of a forest, um, or the Earth's magnetic lines which birds can actually see. I mean, how how does that work? How do they see?
1: Well, one of the things that I I get at in the book is that we can interpret birds to tell us bigger things about the world. And quantum biology is a relatively new area of science. and it basically, we, they believe that uh, quantum biologists believe that quantum effects, which are Einstein called spooky action at a distance, are, um, work at a macro level, not just at a, an atomic level. And one of the things that they think might be uh, a kind of quantum entanglement, is the magnetic lines on the planet, which are a hundredth of the power of a refrigerator magnet, and something, a chemical in the bird's eye called cryptochrome. And this allows the bird to see these magnetic lines through a process of entanglement. And entanglement means there's a hidden connection happening between the bird's eye and these magnetic lines. It's very unlike our physical science. And so it's new, and it's it's kind of hard to get your mind around a bit but they also think, uh, scientists think that photosynthesis, the process of, of plants gathering light from the sun, is also uh, a kind of quantum entanglement process. So it it tells us something about the world that we live in may be different. The birds may tell us that the world we live in is different than we really think we live in. And I, I think I interpret some of that in the book. Another thing, I talked to a scientist who believes... Birds may have. He's a neuroscientist at one of the top institutions in the in the world for neuroscience. But he thinks that something called panpsychism is is um, uh, an elegant explanation for the world, and that is that not only humans but birds and other animals with advanced nervous systems might have a mind or a soul, even. So I, I look at some of those arguments for for um, how we interpret the world through birds. Mm.
0: And you do talk about the fact that uh, Western science and the frameworks that we currently have can restrict us and limit our understanding of birds and that perhaps um, we're missing things by using just one kind of way of looking at things. Um, And uh, you mentioned there uh, birds having a conscious level, a mind state, and in the chapter around uh, the chicken... Uh, it's multiple parts, but it was really um, affecting for me. I am a vegetarian by choice for ethical reasons. And one of the things that you really point out strongly and conclusively is that um, the way that we treat chickens, uh, it may be slightly improving, but it's still really poor. And um, these chickens are Smart, intelligent beings, and they are crammed into cages where they can't move. They're fed antibiotics um, to keep them well enough to live the, you know, however many weeks they're meant to eat. Food to you know become plump enough to be sold very cheaply in a supermarket. Uh, if it's for meat, um, the kind of uh, big chicken um, corporations and the the market that you outline in America is really quite distressing. Um, you know, when you were researching that chapter, what were what was the kind of biggest thing that stuck out to you about chickens and and why did it I guess affect you? when you were researching that? Because you say that, you know, you can't really look at the chicken in the supermarket the same way again.
1: Uh, the chicken, the thing that stood out for me the most is that the chicken is the most industrialized animal in the history of the world. That's astounding. We raise them by the billions in this world. And it's totally, it's totally unfeeling. Uh, we just, we treat them as machines. And I look at how chickens were considered sacred, how they they uh, are often pets, uh, people's pets. They teach their their young. I think someone told me uh, chickens are the only uh, bird that teaches not children chicks to um, certain certain things. So there's there's a lot of reasons there. I stopped eating. I stopped eating Costco chickens, which are kind of the worst of the uh, industrialized chickens, I think. And I, I do eat meat. But I also stopped hunting, hunting birds, uh, after I wrote this book. I I started to realize there's just a lot more going on in the animal world and certainly the bird world than I um, I thought. And birds probably, with chimpanzees and, and uh, the great apes, are probably – Right up there in terms of intellect, with uh, with those animals, and so it really made me question what, uh, how I wanted to be in the world.
0: Mm. And I mean the the way that uh, birds are, as you say, treated like machines. I mean one of the um, parts of research that was really. Um, it stood out to me, was from the Journal of Poultry Science that calculated uh, that if humans grew at the same rate as chickens um, in those farms, they'd weigh 650 pounds or in Australian terms, 295 kilos by the time they were two months old. It's just astounding. And it seems like that is some form of torture
1: it is it's animal torture and you know the breasts are so big because that's where a lot of the value is in raising chickens that they often can't walk they fall over their legs are are poorly developed um they have heart problems because their hearts can't uh can't pump enough blood to, uh, to kind of fuel all, the, all of the the weight they put on so and it, it's just it's kind of a mess from beginning to end and um they they're starting to clean up the industry somewhat um i know some i think one of the big manufacturers in the u.s. is putting chickens to sleep before they they slaughter them i don't know how real these reforms are it remains to be seen but there's a lot of opposition to the reforms the big growers who have a lot of power big chicken they don't want to uh, make these because it would cut into their profit margin and when you have an animal that sells for a dollar 99 a pound which is what uh four, four fifty a kilo or so um you don't have a lot of room for for uh, expenses. Mm. Uh, it's a pretty cut-rate industry.
0: Yeah. Um, just finally, I wanted to touch on, I guess, the message of your book and the things that you conclude with um, in the epilogue. And I guess part of it is about climate change and um, that we, you know, through better understanding of birds and, um, you know, nature more broadly, we can start to adapt and change our behaviour towards birds, hopefully. But there's also um, something you talk about, which is that the notion of human exceptionalism, um, which is a fundamental assumption, is now being re-examined. And our kind of place in the cognitive chain of intellect and, and importance is being challenged. And you've just said that birds are really, um, you know, the next level of intelligence, the closest to us really, apart from one or two other animals. I mean, you know, to you, does that kind of give you hope? What, what does give you hope? Um, and what kind of message did you want to give overall?
1: Well, Hope is a good one. I, I call myself an intellectual pessimist. You look at the world and what's going on around; you can't help but be somewhat of a pessimist. Mm-hmm. But I'm a glandular optimist. I believe that people are waking up, and I think that's—I really think that's going on right now. I don't know why, but people seem to be interested in these things more than ever. Whether it's mindfulness and yoga and interest in animals, I think there's a kind of a, a, an awakening that's going on. And I think that we are much more deeply connected to the, the natural world than we realize. And I think that people are starting to discover that. And that's the point of this book is to wake people up to things that, that normally would be taken for granted. And I think, that, uh, I think that's happening. And I have, I have much hope for the future.
0: And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3 R. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple R website. Hope to see you again next time.